welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 81, Passover and Sacrament. Hello, everyone. I am so glad you're here. This week, we are going to talk about one particular aspect of the story of Moses working through the power of the Lord to free the Israelites. Last week, we skipped the beginning part of his story to talk about the apparently controversial topic surrounding Heavenly Mother and the very real need that we have for faith in our living prophet and apostles in order to stay spiritually safe in this super confusing time here on the earth. So if you haven't listened to that, be sure that you go back and listen to it. So last week, I hope you read your scriptures. I hope you listen to other podcasts to review that part of the story, the beginning part of the story. This week, we are not going to summarize the story, so it would be good if you are familiar with the story, the actual real version of the story, not just the Ten Commandments, which I love, but isn't terribly accurate. Um, And we are going to talk about one particular part of the Israelites' experience as Moses leads them through this time of ten plagues inflicted on the land, um, which sometimes inflicted all of them and sometimes just the Egyptians. And these were done in order to humble Pharaoh enough to let the Israelites go. And just as a quick aside, because as you're reading, you're noticing that sometimes they're called the Israelites and sometimes they're called the Hebrews. Who were the Hebrews and who were the Israelites? They're the same people. They are the descendants of Jacob, who was given a new name by the Lord, the new name of Israel. Get it? Israelites, Israel. Remember from two weeks ago when we talked about Joseph finally reuniting with his family, and then he brings them into Egypt to live in the land of Midian, and he's given access, and his family is given access to all the bounty of Egypt and taken care of during the famine. So these Hebrews are descendants of Jacob, who is, in fact, named by the Lord Israel. The descendants of all the 12 sons and unknown number of daughters, hence they are also referred to as Israelites. So where does the term Hebrew come from? Now that we know where the term Israelite comes from, the term Hebrew is Abraham. Abraham was referred to by the word Hebrew, or at least the the version of Hebrew that is now translated to, I think it's Eber or I can't remember. Anyway, there's a root word that now we translate to, to say Hebrew. Therefore, his descendants were also known as the Hebrews. So means the same thing, basically. As time goes on throughout history, the Jews become widely known as Hebrews. Now, these Hebrews lived peacefully with the Egyptians until what is likely to be an overthrow of the previous regime, that regime that loved Joseph and respected him. And it's likely that the new regime had some sort of prejudice against Hebrews. And at this point, Pharaoh is worried that the Hebrews have grown so numerous that they might be powerful enough to overthrow the Egyptian government or join with surrounding governments or people to then overthrow the Egyptian government. So Pharaoh starts to enslave them with more and more burdens. And gradually it gets to the point where he is trying to get all of the Hebrew baby boys killed. And in fact, he actually starts with the the Hebrew midwives trying to tell them that they, if it's a girl, don't kill them. If it's a boy, you, uh, you, you need to kill them. And the midwives, it says that they feared God and, and they refused to do that. All of this was in an effort to curtail the growth of the Hebrew people and also prevent a new leader from rising up. Okay, so that's kind of an aside. So on to our topic for the day. Sacred physical acts are recorded all throughout scripture. Acts that don't just require good thoughts and feelings about the Lord, but actual action, which I think symbolizes the principle that we in the church are very familiar with is we must go and do as the Lord commands, not just have good thoughts about it. And we ultimately know that there has to be both. There has to be action, willingness to go and do, but there also 
has to be our heart and our mind in the right place. So it's interesting to watch as the Old Testament, um, I mean, ultimately their, their thoughts and hearts needed to be in the right place too, but it focuses a lot on actual action. And once we get to the New Testament and Jesus is on the earth and he fulfills the law and all of those rituals that they were required to do before are eliminated. And now it's about our, our thoughts and our, our hearts and then our ability to then go act in a more free way to emulate the Savior and to do and obey and follow his commandments in a less ritualistic way. So, like I said, sacred acts, physical acts are recorded all throughout scripture. And from the very beginning we have examples galore from sacrifices made to the Lord to marriage ceremonies that we we have today, father's blessings. We have all kinds of physical things that we are supposed to do that have precise ways that they are supposed to be done and by precise authority. We have endowment ceremonies, sealing ceremonies, baptism, the sacrament, wearing garments, and the list could just keep going on and on. And one of the physical actions or rituals or traditions introduced in Genesis 12 that is now even still in effect, at least for Jewish people around the world today, Passover. And though it is, it does have some alterations now by Jewish people. It's introduced here in Exodus as the first Passover. And after this point throughout the Old Testament, it was kind of sporadically practiced. Um, and then it gets to New Testament times and it becomes much more of a regular practice. And many significant Passovers occur in the New Testament. And most notably, the Last Supper was the last Passover before it was fulfilled and no longer necessary as the sacrifice of Christ fulfilled the law. In this chapter of Exodus, the Hebrews are commanded to keep it a feast by an ordinance forever, which is why Jewish people still observe Passover, Passover today as they don't believe that the Messiah has come and they believe that the symbolism represents different things than we know about through the New Testament and through modern revelation. So Moses, through the power of Jehovah, has inflicted nine plagues thus far in order to convince Pharaoh to free the Hebrews. Water turning to blood, frogs, lice, flies, the Egyptian cattle die, boils and blains, which I haven't heard of. I guess it's like zits. <laughs> Hail and fire, locusts, thick darkness, and now the death of all firstborns. The Hebrews are instructed to take a lamb without blemish in the first year, which symbolizes the Savior who was to be sacrificed in the prime of his life to kill the lamb and spread the blood on the side and top frame of their doors. And this would signify to the Lord that this house was to be passed over by the destroying angel. Get it? Pass over. Passed over. They were passed over. Yeah? <laughs> According to Bruce R. McConkie, this symbolizes the blood of Christ, which shall fall as drops in Gethsemane and flow in a stream from a pierced side as he hung on the cross, would cleanse and save the faithful. So what a profound symbol. The purifying blood of the true, eternal, perfect, sacrificial lamb is what will ultimately preserve us and keep us safe in the end, what will deliver us from Satan. So that night, they were to eat the entire lamb, leaving nothing behind. And we know that the lamb itself symbolizes the Savior. So that symbolizes that we should embrace and incorporate the entirety of the gospel into our lives, leaving none of it behind. They were then to roast it with fire and then also have unleavened bread because there wasn't time to let it rise before the coming plague. They were to flavor it with bitter herbs for seven days following this. 
And the bitter herbs represent trials that come with being a follower of Jesus Christ. And the unleavened bread represents the urgency we should feel in following the Lord and not delaying the day of our repentance and commitment. Unleavened bread was also symbolic of leaving behind sin as yeast would make the bread spoil just as sin does to us. The first and last of the seven days were to have special meaning to open and close the Passover. Now, I'm going to be transparent with you, as I hopefully always am, that I am not a scripture scholar. And I actually had a hard time figuring out which of these things were things that they were supposed to do in the future for future Passovers as a celebration of um, the destroyer officially passing over them. Um, my understanding, what what happens in my head as I read this, is I think that night they didn't have time to have the the bread rise, and so it was to be unleavened bread. They roasted the lamb, they put it over their door. Um, but I couldn't actually find, and I even I tried to look at a bunch of toxin, and it wasn't super clear to me if the if this was like a seven day process in the actual first Passover. Or if the seven-day process is just for for Passovers that would happen in the future, Passover celebrations. Um, so if anybody knows that, let me know. I had a hard time finding it. Um, but moving on, I love this beautiful part of the instruction in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. And thus ye shall eat it with your loins girded and your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So this initial practice of eating standing all ready to go, that's what with your loins girded, meaning you have like your your clothes pulled up so that you're ready to run, um, was symbolic of being ready to obey the Lord's command and live the gospel, ready to go and do as the Lord commanded. Okay, so that's the basic instruction that the Hebrews were given, and they were commanded to observe this forever. So being that we have this commandment, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, that we should observe this forever. Why don't we practice the Passover? And aside from spiritual lessons that we can learn from the symbolism, how is the Passover even applicable, seeing that we no longer practice it? Joseph Fielding Smith said, The feast of the Passover was fulfilled in that form in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Passover was a law given to Israel, which was to continue until Christ and was to remind the children of Israel of the coming of Christ, who would become the sacrificial lamb. After he was crucified, the law was changed by the savior himself. And from that time forth, the law of the sacrament was instituted. We now observe the law of the sacrament instead of the Passover because the Passover was consummated in full by the death of Jesus Christ. It was a custom looking forward to the coming of Christ and his crucifixion, and the lamb symbolized his death. The word forever used in the Old Testament does not necessarily mean to the end of time, but to the end of a period. Additionally, Bruce R. McConkie said, It was, of course, while Jesus and the Twelve were keeping the feast of the Passover that our Lord instituted the ordinance of the sacrament, to serve essentially the same purposes served by the sacrifices of the preceding four millenniums. After that final Passover day, its attendant lifting up upon the cross of the true Paschal Lamb, the day for the proper celebration of the ancient feast ceased. After that, Paul was able to say, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, to give us the natural exhortation that flowed therefrom. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice or and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the sacrament is our Passover. Egypt is often used as a metaphor for the kingdom of the devil, and they enslaved the chosen people of God, the Hebrews, and then Moses, who was a prince of Egypt, 
was provided to save them, having descended from being prince of Egypt to the lowest occupation of a shepherd from captivity. And then in this moment where they are going to be saved from from slavery, a sacrificial lamb was provided to represent the Savior. It was the act of the first Passover that facilitated the preservation of the Hebrews, and the Passovers that followed were to serve as a reminder and a celebration of that great rescue. Now think of the sacrament that took the place of the Passover at what was called the Last Supper. Think of that name. It was literally the last true Passover supper. It was instituted just prior to the sacrifice of the Savior, the shedding of his blood, the sacrifice that made possible our salvation and ultimate safety. He was the last lamb to be sacrificed, the last pure, perfect lamb. In the Gospel Principles book, chapter 23, it says this about the sacrament. Our Savior wants us to remember his great atoning sacrifice and keep his commandments. To help us do this, he has commanded us to meet often and partake of the sacrament. The sacrament is a holy priesthood ordinance that helps remind us of the Savior's atonement. During the sacrament, we partake of bread and water. We do this in remembrance of his flesh and his blood, which he gave as a sacrifice for us. As we partake of the sacrament, we renew sacred covenants with our Heavenly Father. Shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus Christ gathered his apostles around him in an upstairs room. He knew he would die soon on the cross. This was the last time he would meet with those beloved men before his death. He wanted them to always remember him so that they could be strong and faithful. To help them remember, he introduced the sacrament. He broke bread into pieces and blessed it. Then he said, Take, eat. This is in remembrance of my body, which I give a ransom for you. Next he took a cup of wine, blessed it, and gave it to his apostles to drink, and said, This is in remembrance of my blood, which is shed for as many as shall believe on my name for the remission of their sins. After his resurrection, the Savior came to the Americas and taught the Nephites the same ordinance. After the church was restored in the latter days, Jesus once again commanded his people to partake of the sacrament in remembrance of him, saying, It is expedient that the church meet together often to partake of bread and wine in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. Just as the Passover was the reminder to the Hebrews, to the Jews, of their great rescue from the Egyptians, the sacrament is our reminder of our great rescue, our liberation from captivity. Terry W. Tessador said, Our Lord's last meal as a mortal stands out in gospel history as the initiation of events so great in magnitude that every human soul, living, dead, or yet unborn, would come to depend on Jesus the Messiah for immortality and exaltation. The timing for this great, significant event was the choice of the master teacher. The Last Supper was not only outstanding as a new sacrament, it was also the fulfillment of more than a thousand years of promises repeated and prayed for every year during the Passover service since the day of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. The more we understand and appreciate the Passover service as the Jews observed it in Jesus' day, the more deeply we can understand our sacramental covenants and marvel anew at the infinite love and sacrifice of our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the sinless, unblemished Messiah could redeem us from our sins and placate the harsh demands of justice. Like the children of Israel, we too can be saved from the destroyer by the blood of the Lamb if we will but strike it upon the lintel and upon the doorposts of our lives through repentance. The more I learn about the gospel, the more I'm continually amazed how it truly is one big story that is all interconnected. And I'm learning that and appreciating that and constantly amazed at that as I read the Old Testament, how it, the things that started out in the beginning 
all tie to things that we do today that have been prophesied. It's just, it's, it's amazing how connected it all is. And that even goes down to the many symbols and, and rituals given to the people in the Old Testament thousands and thousands of years ago. It's all connected to even what we do today. The Lord called Moses to a great work. In chapter 1, verse 6 of Moses, it says, I have a work for thee, Moses, and thou art in the similitude of mine only begotten. It was this man, Moses, who instituted the law of Moses that was to be practiced until the Savior, who Moses was a type of, would come to the earth and fulfill the law and institute the sacrament. Do you notice how the gospel is progressing throughout the ages? The Old Testament people were given Moses as a type for the Savior and given the law of Moses. And then the actual Savior comes and fulfills the law and gives us a higher, holier law. Even if we take the small examples of how we now do ministering in a higher and holier way, we went from more precise requirements to a spirit-guided ministry without boxes to check. If we go from the law of Moses, including the Passover to the sacrament, it is a more internal ordinance within ourselves. I want to end with this testimony from John H. Groberg in his talk called The Beauty and Importance of the Sacrament. One of the most important invitations ever issued to us and to all mankind is to come unto Christ and be perfected in Him. How do we do that? One of the most beautiful and important ways is through the ordinance of the sacrament. The Lord instituted the sacrament, as we know it today, during what we most commonly call the Last Supper. In one sense, it was the Last Supper, but in another, it was the First Supper, the beginning of many spiritual feasts. The resurrected Lord instructed the Book of Mormon people, Ye shall break bread and bless it, and give it unto my people of my church, unto all those who shall believe and be baptized in my name. And this ye shall always observe to do, even as I have done. And this shall ye do in remembrance of my body, which I have shown unto you. And it shall be a testimony unto the Father that ye do always remember me. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. The moving tenderness and deep significance of this transcendent event are still available to us today. But we must do as they did and follow the doctrine of Christ, which is to believe in Jesus, rely on Him, repent of our sins, take His name upon us by being baptized in His church, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and faithfully follow Christ all of our lives. He knows we need much help to do this, so He provides that ordinance of the sacrament to be repeated often. The sacrament is an intensely personal experience, and we are the ones who knowingly are worthy or otherwise. Think of what could and should happen in your life, in your ward, in your stake, if the whole church, if the whole ward, if every Sunday individuals, hundreds, thousands, even millions, under the authority of the priesthood of God, took the sacrament worthily and thus repented and sincerely determined to better follow the guidance of the Lord's Spirit. The life that would be given, the forgiveness that would be attained, the spiritual strength that would be received, the light that would be thus generated would cause Zion to shine forth brilliantly and would prepare a people pure in heart, ready for the Lord's second coming in a way that would be marvelous to behold. I testify from the depths of my soul that these principles are true. Jesus did suffer and die for us. Through him and only through him can we have life and the joy thereof both in time and in eternity. 
I love the Savior. I feel that as he hung on the cross and looked out over this dark scene, he saw more than mocking soldiers and cruel taunters. He saw more than crying women and fearful friends. He remembered and saw even more than women at wells or crowds on hills or throngs by seashores. He saw more, much more. He who knows all and has all power saw the stream of time. His huge, magnanimous, loving soul encompassed all eternity and took in all people and all times and all sins and all forgiveness and all everything. Yes, he saw down to you and to me and provided us an all-encompassing opportunity to escape the terrible consequences of death and sin. And even as he suffered for all of us, he voiced that most beautiful of all requests, Father, forgive them. We must do our part and cry with full fervor of soul. Father, forgive me through the merits of thy beloved son as I partake of these emblems of his broken body and spilt blood for me. Please, Father, through him, forgive me. Help me do better. All life as we know it comes through the joining of two separate elements, much necessary. The Savior, through his infinite atonement, provides that vital element for us. He asks us to provide the other element even a broken heart and contrite spirit, for he will not force us. Think of the symbolism. Think of the power for bringing about a newness of life by worthily partaking of the sacrament. I know that worthily partaking of the sacrament is of eternal importance to him and to us. Yes, I know he gives life in all of its depth of meaning. As the emblems of his love are regularly presented before us, please let us hear, Father, forgive them. And respond, Father, forgive me. This leads us to life, eternal life. My hope for you this week is that you can think of the sacrament in a renewed way. It's like the Passover. We apply the blood of the perfect, unblemished, willing Lamb of God to the doorways of our hearts and minds, having faith that this sacrifice that has already been made, the blood that has already been shed, and that this plan that was already known by the Creator is everything and all that we need. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.